This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. On today's episode, we are going to talk about how Jesus tells us to be like children. He goes on to tell us that it would be better to be dead than to cause a little one to sin. These are great lessons that the church needs to hear today, but also lessons that can transform each of our lives, each of our attitudes toward life into wonder and delight. So I'll start by reading the Gospel of Matthew this time. We'll mention Mark as we have been, but let's start with Matthew. This is in Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven." So that's the gospel. I actually jumped over a section which we're going to cover next time in reading that gospel. Last episode, we saw that microcosm of the church today. Disciples were arguing with religious leaders, with Pharisees, and looking like idiots in front of a crowd, arguing while a despairing man and his damaged child was right nearby, not receiving their aid. This week, we have another microcosm of the church today. In Mark, it follows right after the boy with a demon, and it says, They came to Capernaum, and once inside the house, he began to ask them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they remained silent. They had been discussing among themselves, on the way, who is the greatest. This is the same thing we see in the world right now. Our insistence on putting ourselves forward instead of engaging with the world so desperately in need of what we have to offer. Because truth be told, we are all constantly arguing that we are the greatest. Ironically, whenever I heard this gospel passage for years about the apostles arguing who is the greatest, I felt like I was greater than the apostles because they argue about who is the greatest and I don't do that. But then it hit me. Yes, I do. We all do. We do it all the time. The difference is we aren't honest enough to come out and say, I'm the greatest. We do it through social media posts showing our homes, our children, our pastimes, and our deep thoughts. We also do it by our home decor, our dress, our cars, our references to what we've read, watched, listened to, subtle comments dropping the names of who or what we know. And we also tend to tell belittling stories about our encounters with people we met throughout the day, who we feel qualified somehow to ridicule, Or we make subtle but meaningful references to the shortcomings of mutual friends who aren't there. 
Then when we tell stories about ourselves, to others sometimes, but also when we tell stories about ourselves in our own minds, we reinterpret almost everything that happens as a triumph of me, the indomitable hero. But Jesus wants us to be not like that, but like children. Taking a child, he placed it in their midst, and putting his arms around it, he said to them, Whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. What does Jesus see in children? It's not that children are invariably sweet and docile. They aren't. Children have their egos big time. But children start from and live in a position of secondary importance. Everything in a child's life is ultimately determined by someone else's decisions. His address, her school, his socks. A girl comes home at a time and manner arranged by her parents. and She eats food according to the choices her parents offer. Well, it was exactly the same and more so in Jesus' time. Children had no status and practically no legal rights. They were like we are as regards the kingdom of heaven. No rights, beggars of no importance, but gratuitously given all. Or, to think of it another way, a child is not the protagonist of his own story yet. He is the subplot in someone else's story. His parents, or a parents. And we aren't ultimately the protagonist of our story as adults either. The story we are in stars God and his saving action in the world. He gives us a walk-on part, not a starring role. If we misunderstand that, if we think we are stars instead of extras, we are headed for misery. Because whoever tries to make themselves the star in someone else's story will always fail and usually look like an idiot, like a football player who tries to grab the ball from his teammate, or like a bridesmaid trying to steal the spotlight from the bride. If we try to make ourselves the star of the story which really stars God, our failure will be even bigger than those, and the failure will be unendurable. This passage about childhood comes right after Jesus' second prediction of the Passion. The Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him, he says. But the story says the disciples did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to question him. They sensed that this Passion, which he kept predicting, was a big deal. That it would change everything about their understanding of who Jesus was and about their self-conception. They also knew Jesus didn't like it if you told him he shouldn't suffer and die. Peter had tried that and it ended badly for him. So they didn't even ask what he means. They probably also saw that prediction of failure and suffering and death that Jesus was giving them as something unreal. Those who see themselves as stars of the show cannot understand failure. They imagine only triumphs. Only later... After they come to see themselves as players in God's story, do they embrace failure, because they know the main plot line is what is important, and that their failures fit into a larger story that in the end equals success. Today, we each have the same objection to the cross the disciples did. We would greatly prefer that the church triumph gloriously and skip the cross part, the harrowing ordeals that make us doubt everything. But in reality, victory is a poor test of fidelity. It's easy to be faithful to someone when everything is awesome. 
Likewise, it is not failure, but pride that fouls up our lives. Humble failure can't hurt us, ultimately. Low expectations don't get disappointed. But the success of our pride can hurt us. Think of all the problems our pride causes in our lives when we let it have its way. Pride is a reason most of us are in debt for a house that's too big, for a wardrobe that's too much, for a car that's beyond our means, and for gadgets we don't need. Pride is also the reason that our relationships fail or flail. Pride makes us dissatisfied at work with that job that is beneath us or that position that isn't as great as another person's position. Pride also hurts us at home where we resent the way we are treated. The way to happiness is to become more like a child. A child who knows he isn't entitled, but knows he can't have whatever he wants, who knows that she has to wait in line and knows that she is at the back of the line of life. What is it about children that Jesus wants us to be? I think in one sense it's obvious. I never watched the movie Knocked Up, but I have seen that one part in it where a dad played by Paul Rudd is watching the delight of his small children's faces as they play with bubbles in a park. He says, quote, I wish I liked anything as much as my children like bubbles. It's totally sad. Their smiling faces just point out your inability to enjoy anything. End quote. It's a cynical but highly relatable line in an age where we seem to have more entertainment options than ever, but a far smaller capacity for joy. I brought this up with a theologian friend, and he said, a real Christian shouldn't be like that. Well, a lot of us Christians are like that. Because the childhood us became the adult us, And the adult us is so very different from the childhood us. The childhood you thought life was beautiful and people were good. The adult you has discovered how ugly life often is and how terrible people can be. Shockingly terrible. The adult you started in childhood, actually. Others sinned against you and you sinned against others, and that sin thwarted your growth like a tree that hits an immovable object and keeps growing but becomes twisted and deformed. Childhood sins, by you and against you, started to change you. The teenage you locked those changes in. The teenage you is mortified about how fickle people are and how tenuous your grasp on your community is. Your teenage years were filled with drama. Relationships loomed large on your teen mind, especially your own, but also others' relationships. Discussing relationships consumed hours of texting and talking. It's almost as if teens think the human person is of infinite importance and that connecting with others is the central concern of human life. Oh wait, they're right about that. Not only are they right, but adults are often wrong. Often we have learned to blunt our view of the human person. It hurts too much to acknowledge just how important other people are because we've been hurt so much by other people, so we avoid the pain by denying our true feelings. If you have a teen, tell them you admire them for seeing the truth. They really are right about how dramatic life is. But then tell them you've learned something more as an adult. But I'll share that in a minute. Because something happens to many late teens— You reach a kind of oasis between childhood and adulthood. For some, it's those early relationships as you become an adult and start working. For others, it's college. 
you suddenly decide to give authentic friendship one last go. In the movie The Big Chill, a group who are friends in college get back together, and what they say is really revelatory. I feel like I was at my best when I was with you people, one character says. When I lost touch with this group, I lost my idea of what I should be, said another. And as one critic put it, the Big Chill's blunt suggestion that one may not have lived up to their younger self's dreams or morals hits a universal nerve to this day. Don't necessarily go out and watch The Big Chill. The same reviewer said that it's not worth it. But I think we have all felt that. We look at the childhood us or the early adulthood us and we say, what happened? What happened to that idealistic person full of wonder? What happened to my childhood dreams? I love what the late, great Notre Dame philosopher Ralph McInerney wrote in his autobiography. He said, be true to the dreams of your youth. Herman Melville's career, after knowing highs, went into decline, and he was all but forgotten when he wrote his last novel, Billy Budd. In his portable writing desk, there was found a motto, be true to the dreams of your youth. I like to think it sustained him as he wrote on in undeserved obscurity. Finally, this is what every writer does, return again and again to the original aspiration that came to him when he was young. It is the writing producing a well-made story that counts. All the rest is gravy, end quote. Well, that's from Ralph McInerney, who became a great philosopher and an okay novelist, a mediocre novelist. His childhood dream apparently was to write novels, so he continued to do so throughout life. But like him, many of us wonder what happened to our childhood dreams. I think I've mentioned the 40 Weeks program that I've done uh, before. It's by Father William Watson, and he goes through St. Ignatius' spiritual exercises and describes how the exercises work, starting with the life of Ignatius himself. He said, quote, God led Ignatius through this distorted evolution back to the lost innocence of his true human nature. To get there, Ignatius had to confront his pattern of spiritual and psychological distortions, born from his narcissistic pride. It was a mighty castle that he had built on the shifting sands of a child's wounded innocence, on a child's lonely, broken heart, end quote. To explain how our childhood sins twist us into the adult we become, Watson shares the story of a teen who fought a court battle to get his school to have the banner removed that said, Our Heavenly Father, from a school building. He was offended by it because he didn't believe in God. But he was also quoted saying that he stopped believing when he was 10 and his mother got sick. The boy said, quote, I had always been told that if you pray, God will always be there when you need him. And it didn't happen for me. And I doubted that it happened for anybody else. So yeah, I think that was just the last step. And after that, I didn't believe in any of it, end quote. It was a religious freedom story in the media but this quote reveals that the real story was a wounded child's heart aching for love from God and feeling like he didn't get any. We all have that, and Watson says the devil, the enemy of our souls, will do anything to keep a person distracted from the interior wound so it cannot be healed. You wouldn't even know the wound is there. All you see is the sin that you've built around it. And what's the way out, ultimately? Father Watson said, quote, 
It is to recognize our nothingness, to expect everything from God as a little child expects everything from its father, to be disquieted about nothing and not to be set on gaining our living, that is, the eternal life of heaven, end quote. Wow, that's so true. The child, wounded by sin, becomes the broken teenager, too loud or too shy, too brash or too sneaky, too obsessed or too apathetic. And this is what Jesus means when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. End quote. That's the harshest thing Jesus ever said. And I think it's appropriately the harshest thing that Jesus ever said. Because he's saying it about the sexual abuse of children. And not just the sexual abuse of children, but the moral abuse of children. The failure to teach children the truth. These are two sets of hard truths we have to face about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. One has to do with the behavior of the institutional church. To understand that one, we need a window more transparency on the part of church bodies, and more oversight by laity, willing to look at the church honestly and thoroughly, pointing out the true accusations and the false accusations as well. Priests who abuse children have started a story for Satan in that child's life that will twist and turn them into who knows what, either crushed, angry, bitter, antagonistic to God, or maybe an attacker of innocence themselves. I mentioned in the very first episode of this podcast that the sex abuse crisis became very personal for me. I wasn't abused, thank God, but I was in an organization founded by an abuser, Father Marcial Maciel. The church has done much to reverse abuse and increase transparency, such that on the U.S. Bishop's website, the first thing you encounter is a way to report abuse. We need more windows like that into the inner workings of the church, because the inner workings of the church are still way too shrouded in secrecy. There needs to be more accountability, more understanding of what's going on. But I think the truth in the church that is just as hard is about the behavior not of just priests, but of all of us, the people of God, the laity. To address that one, we don't need a window into the lives of priests and bishops. We need a mirror to look at ourselves. And what would we see there? First, we would see that we have personally led others into sin. Listen carefully to what Jesus Christ has to say about our responsibility to children. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Notice he doesn't say whoever hurts a child would be better off dead. He said, whoever leads a child astray would be better off dead. In other words, Jesus isn't just condemning abusers, though he is certainly doing that. He's condemning any of us who has caused a child to embrace immorality, either by our sins of commission, by things we did, or our sins of omission, by things we didn't do, truths we didn't teach. That is why, during the first iteration of the sex abuse crisis in 2002, When John Paul II called all the U.S. cardinals to Rome, he told them that people need to know that there is no place in the priesthood and religious life for those who would harm the young. And also, that bishops and priests are totally committed to the fullness of Catholic truth on matters of sexual morality. He said, most importantly, 
parents and Catholic school teachers also have to be, quote, totally committed to the fullness of Catholic truth on matters of sexual morality, end quote. The fact is, through lack of vigilance, failures of courage, and false charity, our generation of bishops, priests, and, above all, lay people, mothers, fathers, teachers, has aided and embedded the spread of sexual sin on a massive scale rarely seen before. Not only have we failed to teach kids that sexual sin is bad, we've taught them that it is good and they can indulge in it and not be broken by it. Yet sexual sin is at the heart of the family breakdown that is the leading cause of poverty and the culture of promiscuity that metastasizes into a culture of sexual harassment. Sexual sin is at the heart of the STD epidemic, which goes on, unabated, but not talked about, and the abortion holocaust, and the horrors of human trafficking. The world desperately needs Catholic wisdom on sexuality. They need to hear it from us. But in order to deliver it, we have to recognize our own double lives. It is true that the double lives of some priests and bishops in the scandal is shocking and unacceptable. But rectories aren't the only places harboring a culture of secrecy. In many homes, we can even say most homes, or nearly every home, one or more persons is secretly plunging online into a world of ugly sexual images, becoming more and more addicted and seeking increasingly perverse thrills. It's a world of images that often rely on de facto human trafficking. When Pope Benedict XVI visited America in 2008, he said, quote, What does it mean to speak of child protection when pornography and violence can be viewed in so many homes through media widely available today? End quote. We're used to laughing at and mocking the morality crusades of the past when parents challenged explicit lyrics and songs and racy magazine covers in grocery stores. What's the problem, people said. But all that looks quaint now, with hardcore pornography free to stream unhindered in every home with smartphones and a cell phone. Why aren't we doing more to stop it? The sad truth is too many adults would rather risk exposing children to porn than risk losing their own access to it. But think of the ripples of sin that comes from that central moral failure. Most kids have seen hardcore pornography by age 13. A huge percentage see it from ages 8 to 10. Many others saw it as early as five. We sin against little children and teach them to sin. Then they experiment with each other and teach others to sin. Then they grow up. Some of them fight to try to prove that what they did was okay and that pornography is okay. Some become performers. Some push pornography to new heights. Others clam up about it and just feel shameful and dirty. Others are just emotionally anxious because of it. They say the pornography epidemic changed people's minds about what the definition of marriage should be. They say that it also drives some people to no longer want to be their gender anymore because they don't want to be associated with what they've seen. So what can be done now? Well, for one thing, we need to start protecting the innocence of our children, starting with our own. Give them the grace of having a childhood free of pornography. But more than that, don't teach your children to stop being children. We have an obligation to protect the innocence of childhood in the children we raise and in the children we meet. Children don't stop being children on their own. They learn it from us. We teach them sarcasm. We teach them cynicism. We teach them to fit in with the worst aspects of the world and to feel embarrassed about the best aspects of themselves. 
This is true of teens, too. My first rule of parenting teens is to always say yes when they want to talk. Those moments come often rarely, often late at night. So you have to take advantage of them when they do come. If you don't, even if it's for a good reason like bedtime, they will walk away remembering that you refuse to talk. Help teens find their innocence. Teens think the world is stupid. They think politics is a sick pastiche of lies and truths, and that politicians tend to speak in phony nice words, occasionally mixed with real caring. They think many leaders in our institutions are hypocrites, pretending to have high motives while really just serving themselves. Teens want to cancel the whole system out and start over. They want to point the world's institutions toward the common good and put them to work for what's true and right. Furthermore, they think they can. Furthermore, they think that their favorite politicians are somehow immune from all of this. They're wrong about a lot of that, of course, but they're also right about a lot of that. So agree with them and help them preserve that attitude. Enhance their right attitude with supportive truths instead of crushing their right attitude with numbing and dark truths. Because adults have a lot to offer teens precisely about how to preserve their innocence. Like I said earlier, it's true that adults have learned to hide our vulnerabilities, that we, our life is less dramatic because we care less. But let your teen know the other reason our lives have less drama. We have come to trust in God and the good things life has to offer. It's not all on the line all the time. We've been through relationship drama and come out the other end and saw that the sun was still shining and that people still loved one another and that we can get over our small slights and hurts. Also help them preserve their innocence about church. Young people often see church as boring and unintriguing, something comfortable for old people to do. The church isn't that at all. It's the furnace in which great saints are forged. But they're right, it sure doesn't seem that way. In a conversation with Bishop Robert Barron, Jordan Peterson said, The church is bleeding its young people. And my sense is that it's because the church does not demand enough of its young people. Young people want to be called to heroism and adventure, he said, but the church instead tries to make its message smooth and easy. Barron agreed. But in that same conversation with Bishop Barron and Jordan Peterson, they decided that what we really need to do is tell young people that it's each human being's obligation to become like Christ. Ultimately, that's what we are all meant to be. We're all meant to unite with Jesus Christ and he is the innocent one. He is the ultimate child. Not because he's naive, because he's not naive, but because he trusts. He knows that good wins out in the end. As the gospel passage I started out with ended, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. End quote. Well, that's the secret right there. Remember in the beginning, I quoted the Paul Rudd character who wanted to enjoy anything as much as his kids love bubbles. Well, children are delighted by bubbles because they have a capacity for delight and surprise that we lose in older age. But God, ever ancient and ever new, is the source of endless wonder, endless surprise, endless joy. And it's by looking at his face that we can find that again. But you can't tap into what God offers you if you don't know him. And you can't know him if you don't talk to him. The more you see the world through his eyes, the more wonderful it will become. 
Children also naturally feed off of each other's joy. The reason kids love bubbles when they're with other kids is they're all enjoying bubbles together, and it's like that in every aspect of life. They delight in the company of others. They delight in whatever they are enjoying because others are delighting in it with them. They say, look at me when they're doing something exciting because they want you to share in that experience. The more you try to delight others and the more you share your delight with others and the more you share in the delight of others, the more you will be delighted yourself. Our forms of entertainment used to depend on us delighting each other with conversation, card games, sports. Now we hold off from each other to delight ourselves. But you can only find true joy, true happiness, true delight when you do so in the company of others, for others, with others, and ultimately with God. And there is delight in every situation with God. The book Pollyanna got a bad name because we have decided to call people Pollyannas if they whitewash uncomfortable truths they don't want to face. But in the book, Pollyanna doesn't do that exactly. What she does is play the glad game, telling herself, quote, there is something about everything that you can be glad about if you keep hunting long enough to find it, end quote. It's a great habit to get into. Trouble at work is bad, but it helps you appreciate what goes right. Your new blender breaking is bad, but reminds you not to look to material things for joy. A ruined plan is bad, but find out what good there is in plan B. Pollyanna's attitude finds delight even when there is no yard full of bubbles. As she puts it, when you're hunting for the glad things, you sort of forget the other kind. That's one thing I want to do with this podcast, hunt for glad things. Because we can find the gladdest things of all in the one who loves us, secures us, and guides us each. You know, I started out by talking about Ralph McInerney saying to be true to your childhood dreams. Well, Randy Pausch in his famous last lecture talks about achieving his childhood dreams and how what you start out dreaming might look very different from what you end up with, but it has that same core of experience. Your childhood interests reflect the most authentic you. The most authentic you reflects who God made you to be. And your sins and the sins of other people are what wrecked your story. But look for the glad thing. The glad thing is the ultimate glad thing. Jesus Christ's life was wrecked by the sin, the worst sin imaginable, death on a cross. And that restarted everything for us. It allows us to find our innocence in him. It allows us to find our own personal story, our childhood story, in his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story.